Last Things First. This episode of Last Things First is sponsored by Casper. Go to www.casper.com slash lastthingsfirst, type in the promo code lastthingsfirst, and receive an amazing price on an amazing mattress. Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Today's guest is Reggie Watts. Reggie and I go back to the very first night that I powered up the comicscomic.com. It was November 2007. We were in Las Vegas for the HBO Comedy Festival where Reggie was co-hosting the Andy Coffin Awards with fellow previous winner Kristen Shaw. And I made a deal with Reggie. I don't know if he was aware of it at the time, but we shook on it, so it counts. The deal was to be accepted by mainstream culture for exactly who we were and what we were doing. At this point in 2015, it's fair to say, so many more of you are sublimely aware of the genius of Reggie Watts. He supplies the beats and loops for shows such as Key and Peele and The Jim Gaffigan Show. For several seasons, he was the musical sidekick and so much more on Comedy Bang Bang on IFC. And you can now see him weeknights in Late Night on CBS as the band leader for The Late Late Show with James Corden. We talk about his current gig and how he does what he does oh so well. So let's get to it. So Reggie Watts. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. It is morning. And it, it actually is morning this time. No <laughs> bullshit. So uh, you've just uh, put on a dramatic uh, tour de force here in Montreal. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, uh, yeah, I tried. At least it ended on a good note. That's good. Now, the the part of the legend of Reggie Watts is that your show is is very well prepared and yet ill prepared. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, my show is last things first. So. Last things first. What is the last thing you do before you prepare to go on stage? I would say the last thing is probably nothing. I don't really do anything. I just, I kind of, I basically kind of pretend like I'm doing whatever until it's time for the show. Like as soon as the person's like, oh, you're, you're on, then I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'll go on. So there's not really much I do. Like I, I just kind of like I'm doing whatever I'm doing, and then someone's like, "You've got a show to do." I'm like, "Okay, great," and then I go on stage. <laughs> how how have you trained yourself to to be in that mindset of of being in the moment and yet open to anything? Um, I mean, I guess it's a a lot of it has to do with you know because I do music. I grew up. Uh, studying music, playing music, and then kind of like improvising music. I guess I just kind of uh, got used to just being open to hearing things. Because when you're improvising music, you're, it's really about listening. So everything's listening. So if you're playing with someone else, 
it's about listening. You're listening to what they're doing, how loud they're playing, what key they're playing, what you think they're about to do, all of that stuff. And then if you reduce that from a group of people playing music and then you just turn it into one person jamming, you're really kind of, it's still listening, but you're not, instead of listening to other people, you're listening to your own ideas or you're listening to external output like noises in the room or conversations that you've recently had or, or whatever it is. There's all sorts of information. So you're still like listening and you're seeing what kind of flows into your mind and then you hopefully utilize it in a creative way. Do you have any formal or informal improv training? Um, no, not really. I mean, I, I tried. I remember, um, I mean, I, I went to school at Cornish College of the Arts for two and a half years. I studied jazz voice. And there was improvisation, but that was more theory. It was more like um, these are the scales that you can use with each chord change, you know, so that and which was very, very helpful. It helped my ear musically to be able to hear music differently but i mean i I think i tried i think i tried going to the pit once and they they asked they were like hey does anybody want to you know jump in and try improv or whatever yeah to jam and i got up and i tried and i just got i just shut down i couldn't do it because they have a formalized version of improvisation whereas i have complete it's a free form association so i'm just waiting for I'm creating stuff from the void. Like, there's nothing, no structure. And that was very scary. I was intimidated. Well, and yet you also have a job currently with with the CBS television network, Mm. which is very structured. Yes. I mean, to make the show, it's structured. Luckily, my role inside of it, because it was made clear and understood, and also they knew who they were asking to be Mm -hmm. a part of the show, they don't really expect a lot of structure from me other than you should play now. You should stop playing now. Uh, you should play now. You should stop playing now. But what we're playing inside of the structure mm-hmm. or what we're doing inside of our moments are very unstructured. It doesn't, it's not beholden to anything. And, so, and yeah. does your interplay with James Corden also allow for improvisation? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there's like moments in the show where like sometimes it's built in like to like they'll say like, oh, say something to Reggie or throw something to Reggie. I'll do that. But um, no, a lot of times we just kind of riff and he's he is a riffer, but he's kind of in a mode at the same time when he's doing the show. He's the host and he's doing teleprompter stuff. If it's the monologue, if he's doing the interview, he's, you know, doing the interview, but he's also trying to get to some points you know on his cards that they you know they're promoting mm-hmm. something or whatever so when he throws it over to me it's not as easy to kind of go to do to go too far off the cuff other than me going like well that's that's a rat in a maze for you you know or so you know nothing too long it's very very short so but when we do have interactions it is improvised how does that compare your to your interactions with scott ackerman before with <laughs> I mean, it's so different. I mean, the the comedy bang bang is hyper scripted, but I was allowed to go off of script. You know, I mean, they also they also knew who they were dealing with. Right. I mean, I did the lines that they wrote for the most part, and um, they knew how to write for me, so it was really in my voice. But during the interviews, when they would riff because the, they would riff with the guests and that would actually be a full-on riff just impro- improvise and sometimes they'd throw something to me and I would also riff so in that that regard much more free in mm-hmm. those moments but the other parts like the bits and the things that would happen in the show are all written and they have I have to advance the story so okay. so that's different you enjoyed a nice run with with Scott 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was great. It was crazy. Like so much time, and I, it's hard to feel it. Like uh, you know, because it was like four years. But it's also different when you work on something for two to three months, and as opposed to all year long or something. Um, so so you kind of do three months, and then you kind of like you're done until the next year cycle. for another yeah cycle. So it's like two two months, three months, and depending on how many, you know, how many whatever you call it. Uh, episodes? Is that what they're called? I think so. Yeah. I think episodes. <laughs> I was going to say, like, you know, pages oh, or stories okay. or, yeah. Sketches. Chapters. Sketches. Vignettes. Yeah, yeah vignettes. Funsies. Segments. Blocks. Yeah, segments. Blocks. A blocks. Yeah, units. Blocks. How many units are ordered? Mm. Um, but no, but. Uh, very metric. It is very. It, it's, it's a very measured thing. I don't know. It's just hard for me to feel it because I'm not really. Me and time. I don't know. I have a weird relationship to it. So it's. So by the time that CBS came to you yeah. and offered you the gig on an actual late night talk show, what was the last question you had for them to kind of solidify the idea in your mind that this was something you'd want to jump into? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess for me it was... Uh, I mean, I guess it was, I mean, the, my criteria really, I, I just, I remember saying, well, can I pick my band? And they were like, yeah, of course. And then I think the other thing was, oh, we, I want to improvise the music um, or at least have the capability to do that. And they were like, cool. And then I think my other thing was like, I didn't want to do covers. Okay. Um, I mean, we do do covers sometimes for bits. I, 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 I hold it up. I stop at bits. I'm like, if it's a bit, then it needs a specific song. Then we do it that way. And I understand that. But like for the music that we do for plans and playoffs, mm -hmm. we just don't do covers. It's, I don't know, it's annoying. I don't, I'd rather not. We, we can generate music. So I guess, I guess really it was just knowing that I had the ability to make the band whatever I wanted to. And I can't really think of anything else I was concerned about. I mean, the hours were, were exactly what I wanted, you know. Um, bang Bang was like 7 to 7 a.m. to 7, 8 p.m. on average, you know. Long shoot days. I mean, you know, sometimes you'd come, I'd, they'd be like, you get to come in at 9 or you get to come in at 10, very rarely, but sometimes. But on average, it was like, you know, 10 hour, 12 hour a day and getting up early and, and with, uh, and James, I think James just knew. He was like, "You can, you can come in at two, two thirty, and you'll be out by six, six thirty. And he wasn't lying. That's exactly the schedule that we have. Oh, that's very and nice. sometimes I can even come later. It's, so it's pretty awesome. I mean, that was really kind of it. And and then oh, and then the final thing was just making sure that I'm able to leave after an amount of time. That I don't. I'm, my goal isn't to be Paul Schaefer, um, which is not a, a put down or anything. Paul Schaefer is awesome, but. Uh, I have other things I'd like to do, and I'm interested. I was interested in the show, see what it's like as an experience. But I didn't want to be beholden to like a five-year, ten-year contract. To where you're suddenly the sidekick for life. Yes, exactly. So, so yeah. I mean, yeah. They answered all of those questions in a really cool way. So I, w I was like, yeah, that sounds like stuff that I'd like. So how does this current job match up with what you dreamed you might be doing? <laughs> When you were a kid going, when I grow up. It's a weird thing. It's weird because I never saw that coming. I never saw the, I mean, you know, in comedy, it was an interesting thing because like in music, obviously music's music. And I did music for a while. When I got into comedy, at first I was like doing my whatever thing that I do on stage and I was developing that. 
And then the next thing was like people asking me to do soundtracks, like, you know, or do a theme song for like Penelope, Princess of Pets for Super Deluxe or, mm-hmm. um, or, uh, you made it weird or uh, comedy death ray then comedy bang bang or key and peel now or you have lots of them yeah jim the, gaffigan show yeah yeah jim gaffigan show yeah yeah so there's a lot of uh you know there's just a lot of that and so then i was known for that and then when bang bang came along it was like the idea oh yeah he's the one-man band leader and then i became that and then and then that i guess that showed enough of an example to james corden and those guys where they're like oh what would it be like if he was an actual band leader? <laughs> so I, I didn't dream of that as a kid. As a kid, I thought I'd be doing music. I, I wanted to do music, but I also loved drama and I loved comedy. So I thought it would be something like that, but not specifically a band leader on a late night talk show. I never thought that would happen. Well, when I first saw you, you were full-time musician with Back to. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. When d- at what at what point in your childhood or your adulthood did comedy? into your brain as something to pursue was was there somebody you saw or heard or oh yeah i don't you know i don't know i just remember as a kid i was always laughing at shit like i don't know well well, shit be crazy yeah shit yeah yeah that's true yeah shit be crazy (laughs) that's true it is um turns out shit is very crazy um you can stack it i i yeah i i don't know i mean yeah it's very it's it's a stackable thing um (laughs) I don't. I, I. I think it was probably like. I mean, stuff like I remember like laughing at stuff on Sesame Street, laughing at stuff uh, at the the Muppet Show, laughing um, at stuff uh, from you know seeing like um, sitcoms and uh, you know whatever I was watching or, or listening on music or uh, Monty Python or all this stuff. As I consumed things as an only child, watching TV, you know, after I did my chores or whatever, I, I was laughing all the time. I loved to laugh, and then I loved. To make people laugh. So as far as I can remember, I've always been interested in that. So what was it then that 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 got you to actually go on stage and, and try comedy? I don't know. I think you had already been on stage as a musician. I, I mean, as a musician, I mean, I, I mean, I, I you know, the first time I was kind of on stage in a way besides like choir in elementary school mm-hmm. or something like that, which is kind of that. But I, you know, I staged a school play, yeah, and I think it was in fourth grade or something like that. Okay. And um, so I wrote it, you know, it was my concept. I asked to be able to do it as a special whatever assembly thing. And my whole school came out and I did this stupid play about an anti, anti-drug play. Oh. Yeah. Because I thought like an anti-drug play would be something they'd go for. <laughs> not, because I, not because I was anti-drugs. You were already thinking of the demographics. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, I mean... Yeah, there was that, and I remember doing the talent show. I had we had a talent show when we were in fifth grade before we graduated for the summer to you know to go to middle school, and I remember doing uh, dancing to PYT and like you know in front of the whole class or whatever. And I loved performing in front of people. I, I always had a if there was a piano that was sitting empty, you know, in a mall or something, I would like sit on the piano and start playing it. So I, I'd always always had a I always had a desire to perform for people. And yeah, and then by the time I got in junior high, playing an orchestra, playing piano, um, uh, just being like a weirdo at dance parties, you know, class clown, drama in high school, uh, improvising drama stuff in high school around the state, uh, all that stuff. I mean, it just all added up, but it 
it's something I always was interested in. So did you find it easier or less daunting when you when you went to your first open mic or or comedy it, showcase? I mean, when was the first? Well, I mean, when I did when I did drama in high school, uh, you know, I did humorous solo was the first year, and uh, and and because they had this competitive dramatics thing and uh, around the state, and I think the second year I did humorous duo. Uh, with a friend of mine and we started improvising the piece and then by the end of the season it was kind of written just from what we were improvising right but I remember going to try out for a stand-up competition stand-up comedy competition at the Sheraton Hotel in Great Falls Montana and I went there and I competed and I won it how and old were you I was like I was probably 16 or 17 oh, wow. something like that 16 maybe and uh, I won it. I got a check for like, I don't know, it was like 500 bucks or something like that. And I remember buying like a huge bag of weed or something, um, which was all swag because by the time it got up to Montana, it was slim pickings, but uh, <laughs> in the 80s. But yeah so, I, yeah, so I won that. And then from that contest, you got to perform at like three uh, comedy gigs with other comedians around the state. So I remember going to Browning with my mom. She gave me a ride. Or no, I, I got... I took a car, mm -hmm. got into a car with some comedians, and went up and did some a gig like outside of Browning, which is an Indian reservation in Montana, and like was doing comedy with these older comedians. One of them was like Native American Blackfoot comedian doing like Native American humor, which was awesome. Um, so in a way, like I did, I did stand up when I was like sixteen, seventeen. And what was your style like then as a comedian? Very similar, very similar, minus the looping pedals and stuff like that. But like the, I mean. Now it's a m more refined, like, you know, I'm using different tropes. I'm using, like, you know, technical speaker, uh, presenter stuff to um, whatever, hip-hop people. It's, like, things that, I've, that we see in our world all around us. But at that point, I would say I was just, I was influenced by Eddie Murphy, and uh, I was influenced by Monty Python, and influenced by Carol Burnett, and... and um, and you know and a lot of music Prince and Michael Jackson and so it was that that's really what I was using but the style of stream of consciousness yeah. was very sim similar how much did you know about Andy Coffin at that point I didn't know much other than he was on taxi like that was all I knew as a kid I knew about right. taxi I think that's it yeah that's all I knew yeah weird yeah <laughs> but I mean I obviously Robin Williams I was a huge Robin Williams fan I was a I was a big like um, like well Gene Wilder I was a huge Gene Wilder fan so I mean those all those people really had a lot to do with what I was simulating or emulating on you know, as a stand-up. At, wh at what point did you introduce the looper pedals? Uh, that happened in like '96 or '97 when Line Six first came out actually Line Six DL4 when that came out um, and I was uh, it was replacing an actual analog tape machine like a echo machine mm -hmm. echo effects and because uh, I was touring Europe and I wanted something more reliable and then they just happened to release that and uh, myself and uh, another guy in the band uh, Tucker Martin who's now a country music and indie rock producer um, uh, we both got them for the tour and it started there but I was using it only as an echo machine and then a delay and then maybe years later I started using it as a sketch because I had a loop mode and so I started using it as a sketch idea for like to give to the band that would like to hum something and they would 
it would loop and they would get it and then I would stop it and then we'd work on it. And then I started using it as a solo thing, like doing beats and stuff. And, and it's just like it was a slow evolution. Hello, comedy fans. Are you lying down? If you are, are you comfortable? I don't know how often you buy a mattress. For me, I bought my first mattress when I was 21, and it took a long time before I even thought about buying another one. It's not something you think about every day. And yet a mattress is something you rely on every night. So when you're thinking of buying a mattress, you want to get something that's comfortable and a fair price. Casper mattresses do just that by cutting out the middleman. So you can get a twin-size mattress for about $500, a king-size for $950. That's almost half what you get at a store. Casper combines the latest technologies of latex foam and memory foam to give you just the right sink and just the right bounce, which is what you want when you're lying down for 8, 9, 12 hours or even just a quick nap. The Casper mattresses are made in America and come with a risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. Listeners of this podcast can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash lastthingsfirst. Type in the promo code lastthingsfirst. You're not dreaming. You're listening to the Comics Comic presents Last Things First. Now back to our program. Take me through that process. What's the what's the first thing that that you do with with the how do you how do you what's the process for laying down all those beats? Oh, I see. Yeah, I mean it's pretty it's pretty simple actually. You just uh, you know I think of a some kind of a groove, and sometimes I'll start with a beat, or sometimes I'll start with a rhythmic sound. Um, I try I try doing I try not doing it the same way every time, but there's only so many you know uh, variations. But usually I'll start with a beat or a tempo of some sort of sets of tempo and then like I move over to the next track and I add a bass, move over to the next track, add another sound, move over to the next track or save the track to add something later in the song. And then I just perform over it and either stop it or pull tracks in and out or, you know, I'm just kind of, it's live production. So once I lay down the initial three tracks, uh, I kind of go from there. But also the line six is not a multi-track. I use a line six and also... Electro Harmonics 45,000, which is a just a four-track looper. It's got no effects built into it. So sometimes I'll just do line six because that's what I used for a long time before I got the EHX. So that's a that you can add stuff, but you can't take it away. So I just would put something really basic and perform over it, maybe add something later. But that's kind of it. I mean, you just layer a few things depending on what the tools are and keep it basic, keep it simple, and then just kind of invent on top of it. Now, when <laughs> I mean, now you're you're very well established and you're on network television. But when you when you were first using the the, the loop pe- looper pedals, how did the other comedians react <laughs> to you? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, because the first time I really like really performed in front of other perf- uh, comedians. Uh, was when I came to New York and I did invite them up. Okay. And invite them up. I would have done that like 2003. Something right. Like that. that would be the time from early 2000s at Rafifi. Yes. Yeah. And uh, you know, and I'd met uh, I'd met Eugene Merman earlier in Seattle. He was touring with Stella. Okay. They were touring and they were promoting their their uh, you know their shorts that they made the the the, the original shorts that they made. 
And um, yeah, so I met Eugene there through another artist that was doing a residency with a local dance group in, in Seattle, Linus, this guy Linus. And um, so I went, I was super stoked. I loved Stella and uh, heard good things about Eugene. I didn't know him in that. So when he, before he went up, Linus introduced me. And I was like, yeah, you know, I do comedy or whatever. Sometimes I, I might come to New York or whatever. He's like, and he was just very, very friendly and said, please come to invite them up. Just let me know. And he gave me his number. And then I, yeah, when I came to New York to write with a band while I was there, I, ca I contacted Eugene. He was like, yeah, come by. So I went up and got my line six, put it on a stool and did my thing. And like, as far as I remember, like instantaneously, they were like, oh, that was awesome. Like, come back anytime. And so it was, like, immediately accepted, at least by Eugene and Bobby and right. um, Jenny Slate and, you know, who else was, like, passing through there. Um, yeah, so, so, yeah, it was kind of as far as I can remember. Maybe some people were like, I don't like that, man. I, I don't remember. But, but, I mean, that's the feeling I remember, at least from Eugene and Bobby. Well, you were fortunate to find kindred spirits. Yeah, I felt like I found like my tribe, you know, like, oh, these guys, oh, because I loved comedy so much, and, and, you know, I tried being, I was funny in my band, but no one was really a comedian in my band, and uh, sometimes I would annoy people because I was always trying to do bits, right? And uh, yeah, banter is approved, yeah, in music, but yeah, to it, a point, to a point, and you know, and there was a comedy movement in Seattle. There was Proc, People's Republic of Comedy, and uh, they, those guys. Some of those, I mean, Scott Scott Moran, you know, obviously is doing well doing his filming stuff and director stuff, which is great. Um, and um, there was a kind of a scene there, but that happened after I was in New York for at least a couple of years. I remember Proc came up and then I went back to Seattle and performed with them. And uh, Emmett Montgomery was one of the guys and okay. he was really hilarious. They were all just a bunch of weirdos in Seattle that hung out with a, around a coffee shop. You know that performed in these this weird like shitty theater and it was awesome, um, but in Seattle that was the only thing that I had to, the only people that I could hang out with that kind of got it. But really the New York crew was those were the people. What is uh I don't want to keep you. What is the what is the last great advice you've received? Uh last greatest advice received. Um, Trying to think, what would that be? Last greatest advice. Yeah, it's it's funny. I give out so much advice that <laughs> it's hard for me to remember advice that's been given <laughs> to me. Um, Are you going when when you give advice? Do you go t to the well of somebody else's advice? Uh, I think a lot of it is based off of my experience. Okay. You know, like if a if an artist. I think I think one of the pieces of advice that I give to people that maybe I got from somewhere. No, I, I think this is something I arrived at on my own. But I just said, uh, yeah. And so in a way, I guess it's the last great advice I've given myself. But uh, uh, is that uh, don't be concerned about your career. Like, and I think that there's something there. And maybe someone offered some kind of advice that you know that alluded to that. But it's it's basically the idea that. Uh, as soon as you become concerned about your career, then you're no longer on the path or, or artistically. I mean, some people are in it for a career, you know, but a career is something that just ha you just notice you're having, 
but really you're just having fun and trying to to do more fun and try to make a living at 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 having fun but ultimately realizing that you'd still be doing this even if you weren't making a living at it um and i think that that's just important to remember because otherwise like why are you doing it especially comedy like why why are you doing it i don't understand (laughs) so why do you do it I, i do it because i i mean i i can't not do it I mean, like, I can't, when I see something weird or something funny or something pops into my head, I can't not say it. And, I, you know, and I, I tell people that all the time. And sometimes I'll be like, hey, what, what, do you, what advice would you give? And I'm like, if you wake up in the morning and you're thinking about something that's funny or you're thinking about something that would be interesting and, and you go to bed and you're keeping yourself up because you're thinking about interesting, weird stuff or ideas keep hitting you all the time and you can't shut it off, then that's what you should be doing. Um, you know, and it's not that clear. Some people, some people have to practice and work at it, you know, but they have a passion for it at least and they'll arrive at it as well. But I I do it because I can't not do it. If somebody comes to you, a young comedian or performer, and they're so inspired by by the fact that you don't subscribe to a standard form of comedy or even a performance, do you have any specialized advice for them to make sure that oh. they they don't end up in a in a mainstream lane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or yeah, or being rejected and right. like not feel because they're different or told that they're a hack or a yeah. prop act. Or right, exactly. Like you're leaning on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I always tell them. I always tell them that you're you know you're in charge. You know, it's your world, um, and if you have a strong vision of like how you want things to be, find other people also find other people that you resonate with and try to meet those people or try to hang out in a scene that, that, that supports that kind of a thing. But I think that there's, I think as long as there are people that are, that provide examples of unconventional ways of, of performing or existing that are doing that are making a living that you know about, that you can see what they're doing, what they're up to. I think that that's kind of the greatest thing. It's definitely, there's a little bit of a kind of a, an evolution or a survival thing um, in that ultimately you'll find a way. Again, it goes down to that. Like, can you shut it off? Can you not shut it off? If you can't shut it off um, and you've got adequate social skills, you're kind of, you're fine because you'll, you know, and you've got talent and people, people dig it, people dig it or someone digs it or a small group of people dig it and they want to see more, you know, that's all you need. And yeah, you should never be discouraged by what you think other people think of you or, or anything like that. It's, it's good to listen to the reactions, but, uh, yeah, to take the temperature but also realize that if you're entertaining yourself, that's kind of like the most important aspect because that reads on stage. So without that, then maybe, I don't know, maybe there's another consideration. <laughs> well, Reggie Watts, I'm always entertained by you. So Thanks, man. So thanks for staying up late and, and, and talking with me. And no problem. Glad we got to do it. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, man. <laughs> Last thing.
This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.